When Renee and I lived just north of Boston, I was actually out driving one night and I was listening uh, to a, a service on the radio and, and the preacher comes over and says, brothers and sisters, open your Bibles and turn to Levi Ticus. And so we're going to be looking at Levi Ticus, better known as Leviticus, uh, for the next uh, so many weeks, maybe even 29 or so, but don't let that worry you. Today we begin this series, and, and really my, my goal today in this introductory message on the, the book of Leviticus is to give us the big picture, to see the vision that God casts for his people in this book what he's communicating to us about himself, about us as his people, and about his kingdom. Alexander the Great, who lived 356 through 323 B.C., was the king of the ancient Greek kingdom Macedonia. And he is one of the greatest visionaries in human history. And this is basically Alexander the Great's vision. His vision was to conquer the entire world, that his kingdom would spread to the ends of the earth. He was also considered to be one of the greatest military planners and commanders in world history as well. And so his military genius was what enabled him to seek achieving his grand vision of conquering the world as he was such a great military leader that in all the battles that he fought, he was never defeated. We read about Alexander the Great in the Bible. Daniel chapter 8 describes the speed and totality of Alexander's conquest in foretelling of this ram with a big horn between its eyes that will come and just spread quickly across the face of the earth. And Alexander, at the age of 30, accomplished much of his vision, though he didn't accomplish his vision in full, but hit the empire that he made stretched from Greece to India. So Alexander cast a vision, a grand vision, but he also had the ability to have the means, the way, his military genius to accomplish that vision. But here's something about Alexander the Great and all great visionaries in world history. They're mortal. Alexander the Great is dead and has been for some time. And the empires that they establish are limited and temporal. In fact, after Alexander's death... His kingdom was embroiled in civil war and basically was broken apart into lesser kingdoms primarily ruled by the generals who served under him. Human visionaries come and go. Human kingdoms rise and fall. But the God of the Bible is from everlasting to everlasting. He is eternal and his kingdom shall have no end. And what I want us to, to look at today is God being the ultimate visionary and God being the ultimate planner and strategist to accomplish his vision 
And we find aspects of his vision, part of his vision, in the pages of the book of Leviticus. And we find aspects of his plan to accomplish his vision also in the pages of Leviticus. And I would submit to you that having this big picture of Leviticus, that Leviticus is about God casting a vision for his people and also showing them the means for his vision to be accomplished is how we should approach understanding what many say is one of the most difficult books in the Bible. And it is, it is certainly a complicated book. And at some points, it is downright strange and peculiar, especially to us. And it's hard to make sense out of it unless we have an anchor to fix ourselves, unless we continually go back to the big picture of what God is seeking to do. So what is Leviticus all about? What is this vision? Let me give it to you in three parts. The vision that we see God casting in Leviticus is how the, the king of the covenant works such that his covenant people can be in his presence, reflect his character, in particular his holiness, to the world, and thus spread his kingdom. That ultimately is what Leviticus is all about. God making a way for his covenant people to be loyal members of his nation God making a nation of priests a holy nation. And so today we'll, we'll look at, at just some introductory aspects of the book of Leviticus. But before we go any further, let us commit ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can come now to your word, though we've been reading and contemplating your word throughout this service, singing your word and your truth in the pages of the hymnal. We thank you, Father, that we can now come in particular and to look at just a few aspects of this book that you've given your people. That is a book you intend for blessing that your people would have a grand vision of what you're doing and what you will do. And so we, we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So your sermon outline basically gives the three points of this grand vision that I just spoke about. And the first thing we want to look at uh, today is, is holiness. And when I think about holiness, and when we think about holiness, we should think about being in God's presence. Because holiness and being in God's presence is very much central to the book of Leviticus. And so I want to begin by just drawing our attention to this structure called the tent of meeting. Leviticus begins where Exodus leaves off. And the end of the book of Exodus and the beginning of Leviticus really set the stage both redemptive historically and theologically for what we will read throughout the pages of Leviticus. And it certainly introduces for us 
this incredible vision that God has for his covenant people as he is the covenant king. So Moses and the people were instructed to build a tabernacle. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 25 through around 27 specifically. There the instructions were given. And so they built this tabernacle. They completed the work. And in chapters 36 through 39, we see that this, this cloud, and then also Exodus chapter 40, comes and settles upon the tent of meeting that had been constructed. The cloud representing the glory of the Lord. And the cloud would settle upon the tent of meeting by day and at night. It would, God's glory would be depicted by fire. And so take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 40 as we read about this beginning with verse 34. Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journey. So you get the picture that this tabernacle is going to be with the people even as they leave Mount Sinai for the promised land. That tabernacle will be there. God's glory seen by day because of this cloud. God's glory, His presence in the midst of His people represented even at night by the fire there at the tent of meeting. And what's interesting about this passage is Moses, the text says, is unable to enter the tent of meaning. Thus the book of Leviticus picks up right as the people of God are still there encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. The tabernacle has been built. The cloud has settled upon it by day, fire by night. And Moses is standing there unable to enter because the glory of the Lord had filled the tabernacle. And Leviticus in chapter 1 and verse 1 through the very first part of chapter 2, we read God summoning, calling Moses to come before him at the tent of meeting. Leviticus 1, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them. It's important to to look back to see how Israel got to this place with Moses being summoned to the tent of meeting and the Lord giving Moses laws and regulations to speak to the people. Earlier in Exodus, we find God redeeming a people out of slavery in Egypt. And he redeems them through the, we can say, baptismal waters of the Red Sea, though the people walked on dry land, to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there he entered into a covenant relationship with his people. 
And you can read about this covenant in Exodus 20 through 24. And the covenant of Sinai, the Mosaic covenant, is given there. And we read in Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6, about God's purpose in bringing them to Sinai was to enter this covenant relationship. So turn it to Exodus 19, verses 1 through 6. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, ye shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The covenant relationship, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God says, if you obey my covenant, and the covenant is given in chapters 20 through 24. And so we find on two occasions the glory of the Lord settled upon the top of Mount Sinai. We read about this in, 19, in chapter 19, verses 16 through 20, just a little bit after the passage we just read. We also read about it in Exodus 24 and 15 through 17. Both times the glory cloud settled upon the top of Mount Sinai, God summoned Moses to the mountain. In chapter 24, verses 1 through 18, the second occurrence of the cloud settling upon Mount Sinai, God gives the law, the covenant stipulations to Moses that, that include the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And in so doing, God confirmed his covenant with Israel. And God gave instructions for the tabernacle and the priestly garments to be built and constructed. In chapter 32 through 34, while, get this, while Moses is on the mountain receiving the law in chapters 32 and 34, the people became impatient because Moses did not come right back down from the top of the mountain. And they fashioned the golden calf. Many of you know the story. And they began worshiping with it. Before they had even seen the tablets of the Ten, of the ten Commandments, they, they violated the covenant. They broke it. And Moses comes down eventually and sees them worshiping, violating the first four commandments already. And he takes those stone tablets and he 
throws them and they break upon the stones. Judgment comes upon the people. Moses intercedes for the people. The covenant is renewed. A new set of tablets are made. And the covenant, God's presence, will be with his covenant people throughout their journey and even as they inhabit the promised land. Dr. Schuyler writes this, the tent of meeting is thus a portable Sinai, a place of the Lord's presence and revelation. As the glory cloud on two occasions settled upon Mount Sinai, as Moses was summoned in both occasions to the top of Mount Sinai, we see this portable Mount Sinai in Leviticus 1, the tabernacle, and God summoning Moses there. Do you see the parallel? That covenant God is going to be with his covenant people as they leave Sinai and travel to the promised land. He will be in their midst. The covenant king has come to dwell with his covenant people. And that is symbolized by this tent of meeting. Leviticus 1 the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent. I mean, this is nothing but grace. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent after the people had so grievously broken the covenant already. They were faithless. They deserved God to simply turn his back on the people and be done with them. But he didn't. Israel's sin did not invalidate God's covenant with his people. Through the mediator Moses, a type of Christ, the covenant was renewed. And we need to understand that when God renewed that covenant, he renewed that covenant with people he knew were going to be imperfect, impure, sinful, covenant breakers time and time again. But he renewed the covenant. He said, I will be, the covenant king will be in the midst of his covenant people. That is amazing. That God will be in the midst of his covenant people and demand covenant faithfulness knowing his people will struggle to be faithful. Well, how can sinful, impure people be in the presence of holy God and not be consumed? If God dwells in the midst of his people and they are sinful and impure if they struggle with being faithful then God has to provide a way that they can be in his presence and not be vaporized how can sinful people be before a holy God you see this is the question that is answered in the book of Leviticus and so in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, in the first part of chapter, verse 2, the Lord God called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, Say to them what? Say to them, This is the way. You will be able to have fellowship with me as I dwell in your midst. Say to them, 
So we want to look for just a moment at holiness being central to the message of Leviticus. So what does it mean to be holy? We often think of it only means to be morally pure, and it does mean that, but it primarily means set apart. It means being distinct from everything else. And so God is perfectly and absolutely holy. He is ultimately set apart from everything. He is supremely distinct. He is holy by virtue of his nature. He is set apart and distinct because he has absolute power and he does have absolute moral purity. And this is why anything that is sinful and impure cannot be before this holy God. Think of it like this, the tent of meeting in the midst of the people and there's a wall built around it saying, if any of you people pass through this wall or pass over this wall, you will immediately die. Now, how would you like that to define the relationship between the covenant people and their covenant God? Here is this God who has sequestered himself and we can't really be in his presence. And so it would be a life of fear, right? And distance. But see, God doesn't do that. He says, I'm going to be right in the midst of you. And you're going to be able to be in my presence, though you're so sinful and impure at times. Because I'm going to make a way for you to be before holy God. Now just think about that. That's the book of Leviticus. That's why the book of Leviticus is so important for us in our relationship with God. So God causes people to be holy, albeit in a limited way. He calls the people to be holy in chapter 11, verse 44, and other places in Leviticus. He's entered a covenant relationship with his people. He sets them apart from all the other nations. And the way we see God doing that in Leviticus is he sets them apart. He makes them distinct as they go about these rituals as we see this, this priestly order being given, and as we find these purity laws being placed upon the people, that's how God sets the Israelites apart. And they're able to approach him. Now, I want to do something that might be a little confusing, and so I'm going to try to be as clear as I can. Because I've mentioned three things that I think are central. Holiness is central to the book of Leviticus, but there are three other things that are central. Rituals, the priesthood, and purity laws. And we'll be looking at distinctions over our time of impure, pure, and holy, and how we're to understand those rightly in the context of Leviticus. But to give us a framework of, of how Leviticus is organized, we actually see Leviticus, think of it like this, as two parts that is connected by a central part or a hinge. And these two parts are mirror images of one another. So, let me give you the broad outline of the book of Leviticus. 
So the first section, rituals, we find in chapters 1 through 7, but also chapters 23 through 27. So the book begins with rituals and the book ends with rituals. And now the second part is about the priesthood, chapters 8 through 10. But also the sixth part is about the priesthood, which would be chapters 21 through 22. And then the third part of Leviticus is about these purity laws that God gives, which we find in chapters 11 through 15. And then we find, I think it's the fifth section, which would also be purity laws, that would be in chapters 18 through 20. So you see the mirror image here? You might be asking, what is the hinge? What is the center of the book of Leviticus? What really brings these, these two parts together, verses, chapters 15 and 16, the Day of Atonement. And so that's how these rituals, the priesthood, the purity laws are presented in the book of Leviticus with the Day of Atonement being the centerpiece of the entire book. So in Leviticus, God sets before his people a vision of being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, Exodus 19.6. And he provides the way for this vision to be achieved through the rituals, the priesthood, the purity law, so that they can be his holy people in his presence, so they might be faithful as his covenant people. That's the grand vision that God cast in the book of Leviticus. But not only that, God cast this vision for his people to be in his presence so that they might also reflect his character, in particular his holiness to the world. And even more than that, as they reflect his character and his holiness to the world, that means they extend, they spread God's kingdom worldwide. Do you see the grand vision that God has blessed? You will be my people. You will be in my presence. You will reflect my holiness. And as you do that, you, my people, will be about the business of extending and spreading my kingdom throughout the world. The vision God cast in Leviticus, however is actually part of a bigger story and a bigger vision. As we seek to understand the book of Leviticus, we must see it in the context of what God is doing in Exodus and also in Numbers. Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. We've already talked about Exodus. Exodus is about God redeeming his people from slavery and establishing a covenant relationship with him. What is Numbers? Numbers is about God leading his people from the foot of Mount Sinai where he has established this covenant to the promised land. And here we have Leviticus right in the midst that as God's people journey from the foot of Mount Sinai to the promised land, God will be with them. He will dwell amongst them. They will be able to be in his presence through the rituals, the priesthood, the purity laws that we find in the book 
of Leviticus. And when they get to the promised land, they will, God's presence will continue to be with them. They will still be able to be in God's presence. They will reflect His glory as a nation, as a kingdom of priests and a, and a holy nation to the world. And because of that, God's kingdom will spread. You see, that's His grand plan. But even that's not really the grand, grand, grand vision that God has for us. Because even as we look at Leviticus, we must see it in the context of the visions of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. We must see the context of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers in really the big story of the entire Bible, a bigger story. And we find an interesting parallel with what we see in Exodus, Numbers, or Leviticus, and Numbers with God's original intent for humanity in the Garden of Eden. So let's go, let's, let's go back to the Garden, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, for just a moment. Let's see. I can do it. God created everything, and He created a lush garden. He created Adam and later Eve from Adam and put them in this wonderful garden to enjoy it. He established a covenant relationship with Adam, promising life. And Adam and Eve were able to walk with God in perfect relationship, in fellowship, in the garden. God created Adam and Eve to be in His image. They reflected His character. They reflected His holiness to the world. God said not only that, but he gave them the cultural mandate that they might have dominion. He says, you fill the earth, multiply. In other words, you spread my kingdom to the very corners of the earth. That was God's intent for humanity in the Garden of Eden. Exodus, redemption. Leviticus, how to be in God's presence that we might reflect his glory the promised land to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation to reflect the character of God and to extend his kingdom. Do you see the parallel between Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and the Garden of Eden? And in some respects, what we see God doing in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers is recapturing God's original intent for humanity in the Garden that we might be in His presence, that we might walk with Him in fellowship, that we might reflect His glory, that we might extend His kingdom. Are you getting the picture of the grand vision that God has? Are you seeing also that God is just simply not a great visionary, He's a supreme planner, that He's developed a plan, a way that this vision might be accomplished and the storyline of Leviticus really is this being part of that great vision of God to recapture Eden. But even that is not really the big, big, big story and vision of the Bible. Because you see, ultimately, Leviticus points to Jesus. And Jesus is the one who redeems a people unto God by fulfilling the covenant. Jesus is the one who 
fulfills much of what we see in Leviticus. Some of the Leviticus purity laws, for example, and rituals are abrogated, and many Jesus fulfills, but certainly Jesus fulfills the priesthood. He is the great high priest. And not only that, but Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that God's people would be redeemed. And through Jesus, we're able to have fellowship with the living God. And through Jesus, we're able to be sanctified. I think sanctification is a big part of the book of Leviticus in order that we might more and more reflect the character of God to the world. And through Jesus, he works through us to extend his kingdom. And one day, Jesus' kingdom will come in full. And really what Leviticus and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and the garden and the promise of a redeemer in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall had taken place, all of that should direct us really to the fulfillment of this grand vision of God a fulfillment that we've already spoken about this morning and sang about in Jesus coming back and establishing the new heavens and the new earth where his covenant people will have perfect fellowship and where his kingdom will extend to the corners of the earth absolutely and in full. And so this is how we should approach the study of Leviticus. Seeing Leviticus as part of that grand vision that God is casting for his people, that they might be in his presence such that they will be able to reflect his character, his holiness to the world, and thus spread his kingdom. Let us pray. Father, bless us as we begin this journey through this book. And though in parts it may cause us to blush, other parts may totally confuse us. There may even be strange things that we encounter thinking there, there's absolutely no correlation with what is written in that book with my life today. We admit our limitations and being able to understand your word. For your word is true, it is eternal, it is fixed, and it revives the soul. And may our study of Leviticus even revive our souls, especially as it points us to Jesus and his kingdom that shall have no end. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would take your